So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I'm really excited to share this with you because I filmed this interview just a couple of weeks ago and it was such a memorable experience. Today's guest started life as a jump jockey himself, winning 133 races. Now, if you've been to Sporting Edge's interview with AP McCoy, you'll know that these jump jockeys are a special breed. They're hurtling over these four and a half foot high jumps at around 40 miles an hour on these incredible beasts. So they have huge drive, resilience and this mental and physical toughness to cope with the wins and losses of all their turbulence and injuries. After a bad fall breaking his leg aged 27, today's guest made the transition into training racehorses. It would be a move that would change his life and dominate the sport. Over the next 30 odd years, he's amassed a remarkable three and a half thousand winners and over four million pounds in prize money for the racehorse owners. His horses have won pretty much every big race, including the Grand National, the Cheltenham Gold Cup four times, and he's been named the champion trainer 14 times. He's a serial winner. It is, of course, Paul Nichols' OBE. Here's a taste of what's to come. Dad took me off and had some riding lessons, and um, I just got hooked on ponies, riding, going fast. And in 1991, Seagram remember won the Seagram Grand National funny enough and um, I'd ridden a load of winners on him before then and I'd got injured and I'd broken my leg and I'd retired and I, but I was overseeing the Seagram thing and once he won the National in 91 I've got to do this for myself. I, I used to count to 10 and blow off um, and now I don't I'm, I'm very much I'm much more laid back than, I, than ever I was because that's experience isn't it. But I'm proud of the whole success of Team Ditcher it's been fantastic and it's been a fantastic story for me and it feels to me like we've only just begun. Before we dive into the interview I just wanted to describe my experience of meeting Paul at his beautiful stables down in Ditchit deep in the Somerset countryside. Paul and his team laid on an incredible experience which started with dinner in the local pub where he shared so many stories of his career. I wish we'd had the cameras rolling at that point. And after a good night's sleep, he picked us up bright and early in the morning to go and see about 50 or 60 of his incredible 150 horses that had got in training as they emerged through the mist 
on the gallops. They came through in squads, depending on the conditioning that they need. And I think he'd got one group that hadn't done too much training that were affectionately called the Fat Boys Club. And they were doing a few more hill climbs that morning. So I definitely felt for them. But the horses were in amazing condition. And he was fine-tuning their workloads to get, you know, these quick check-ins with the jockeys to see how the horses were responding and, and feeling on that particular day. So fascinating to watch Paul interact at that point. And after a few circuits of that low, flat gallops, we jumped in the car quickly to head up back through the village to catch the same horses as they ascended this steep hill gallop that uh, looks pretty unique for his training arena. And their thundering hooves and snorting was a sight and sound that I'll never forget. And this also gave us a beautiful view over the dairy farm where the stables are situated. So this is his landlord and former mentor, Paul Barber and his family. And they farmed this land successfully to produce award-winning cheddar cheese since 1833. And the beauty of this dairy farm is that the site promotes natural grazing for the cows. So unlike being near a, an arable farm that might use lots of pesticides, these ditchit horses are training in pure rarefied air. They're almost like the Kenyans of the racehorse world. And after seeing the lay of the land, we went back to his stables to see the horses walk through their recovery suite like Premier League football stars. They were washed down with huge care, fed and watered in five-star surroundings. I poked my head around the corner to see where one of his champion horses, Corto Star, had lived and it was absolutely immaculate, as was the whole yard. But this wasn't just a yard of beautiful horses. This was a high-performance system which had been grooved over decades. And although Paul doesn't have scientific words or complex management models, he's got a forensic eye and an understanding of what it takes to nurture and sustain winners. He knows every moving part of his yard, and his equivalent of marginal gains can be summed up in the comment that he made at the end when I left him where he said, there are many crumbs that make up a cake. While I naively watched some beautiful horses in a row trot past us in line, he saw a live update to his racing algorithm with minute details and changes in body language as he predicted which races each horse would be in peak condition for in the early season. Speeds, distances, inclines, jockeys, weather forecasts all blurred together to give him an instinctive feel, 40 years in the making. Paul is a practical professor of his trade and the trophies that adorn his beautiful house are testament to his standing in the sport. Let's get into the interview with this humble, warm and searingly driven winner. So how did you first get into racing as a young boy? Um, that's a good question, really. Um, my mother and father had nothing to do with horses. My grandfather had nothing to do with horses. In fact, my dad and my grandfather were both in the police force in Gloucester and Bristol. Um, Granddad used to follow racing a little bit on the telly and every Saturday afternoon I used to go and watch ITV7 back in those years with him. And I think, for, I can't remember what age it was, but for Christmas present he bought me some riding lessons. Dad took me off and had some riding lessons and um, I just got hooked on ponies, riding, going fast. And Dad sort of enjoyed it as well. And I don't know why, I sort of got more and more interested in racing. Uh, did all the normal pony club stuff. 
hunting pony, show jumping pony club camps, all that. But yeah, the thrill of going fast was brilliant. So I persuaded Dad to buy me a racehorse, a pointer pointer. When I was 16, I was already working in a racing yard, sort of hunting yard in, in, in Gloucestershire for a great guy called Dick Bainbridge. And uh, really went from there, really. I, I, I read a few point to point winners. Um, then I left home when I was 16. I got myself a job in racing, sort of pushed myself a little bit. Um, rode a few winners in an amateur um, and was offered quite a good job with a trainer called Josh Gifford, who'd won the famous winner the Grand National with Alden Eaty, turned professional and rode quite a few winners. Um, my biggest problem, as you can imagine, was my weight. I struggled with that enormously, so it's sort of limited to the number of rides I could take and how long I was going to make it as a professional. Um, I, 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 you'd, I could go on and on. I rode a few nice winners, really nice winners. Play school, Broadheath and Hennessy Gold Cups, won the Welsh Grand National with him. Um, and, and eventually I got myself a good job in the West Country with the Barons who trained those horses. Um, I got hooked on training there because I was so heavily involved. And in 1991, Seagram, I can remember, won the Seagram Grand National, funny enough. And um, I'd ridden a load of winners on him before then and I'd got injured and I'd broken my leg and I'd retired. And I, but I was overseeing the Seagram thing and once he won the national at the year 91, I thought, I've got to do this for myself. No idea how I'm going to do it, but I was hooked on training. So what did it feel like with that first horse that you'd been close to training when it crossed the line as the winner? What was that emotion like? Well, Aintree, when Seagram won, it, it, it was like I'd learned it was teamwork. They'd put that together. It was, you know, a lot of people involved. Although David Barron's had the trainer's license at the time. There was so many people involved in, the, in, in that horse and the thought of getting it to go to Aintree and from Nigel Hawker rode it to Andrew Hobbs, the late Andrew Hobbs is a friend of mine who was head lad at David Barron's, rode him out every day. My thinking, we all got together and came up with this plan that he could win a national and he did. And once he won that national in 91, as I said, I, I knew I'd done enough. I'd been assistant trainer to the Barron's for three years by then. Um, I wanted to train for myself, so that was my next mission in life. I had no money, I had nothing really, I hadn't come from a wealthy background, so I had to work out how to train really. And what do you think it was that you'd learnt as a jockey through those 119 wins and those years of sort of challenging and adversity that, well, that sort of taught you the skills to be a great trainer? Well, I did, I did work out uh, a lot of different ways of different ways of training. And, and just at that time, Martin Pipe, who actually I rode a couple of winners for, was doing very well training. To me, from riding, his horses, head and shoulders above anyone else were fitter than anyone else. Fitness, fitness, fitness was key. No matter what you did, whether you took them on at the start, you'd end up going backwards. If we dropped in, tried to chase them later, never got to. They, they, they had incredible levels of fitness and he was doing this interval training, a, a new modern way of training. I was fascinated by this and I've worked out really, one thing I took from my riding days and different people was fitness, or lack of it in some cases, was the key to it all. So when I started training, that was going to be my motto, fitness. And what was the biggest constraint that you faced early on in your career that you had to overcome? Well, first of all, it was finding somewhere to train and then the lack of finance, really. Um, but eventually, one day, there was an advert in the Racing Post for, say, I remember now saying 20 box yard in, in Somerset, successful applicant will have the support of the landlord. It was um, Paul Barber. Um, it was my long-time friend in years, but he and I'd ridden a winner for him, funnily enough. So I was on the phone straight away, and, and I remember the first thing Paul said to me, "What kept you?" I said, "Well, I've only just seen the advert an hour ago." And he said, "Right, get up here tomorrow, and we'll we'll have an interview and a chat." I went up to Paul the next day, went through the interview process, and 
and um, love what I saw up here. There's, it was only a small yard, there was 20 boxes and a, a stiff gallop, nothing else, but I just thought, well, that hill's a start for getting horses fit and I had nowhere else to go. And Paul did say that if you know, whoever was successful, he'd help them with the first six months, re-rent and different things like that. And I, I did went for the interview and I said afterwards, um, would, you know, don't keep me waiting too long, just let me know. He said, I'll let you know by tomorrow morning. Well, six o'clock that night, he said, when do you want to start? And so we, the rest is history, really. Then I moved up in September with eight horses, started with eight horses with support and blessing of Paul. And the rest is history, really. And he asked you a couple of key questions in that interview process that it'd be great to hear. He did, yeah. And I just remember, sadly, Paul died in the summer, which was a great loss to everybody. But um, so all these things come flooding back to you. And I'm, uh, two questions stand out to me. One of them, he said to me, um, boy, you used to call me then, boy, where do you see yourself in 15 years? And I said, oh, it's simple, I'll be champion trainer. Obviously not thinking that. I just thought that was a, sounded a good answer. Sounded positive. Do you know what? Fifteen years, basically, to that day, I was champion trainer, which is an amazing uh, string of events, really. But I, I was just joking. But he must have seen something in that that I was positive. And the other one, the last one, he said to me, um, one thing I'd like to ask you: Do you play golf? And I'm thinking, Chris, what do I say to this one? And I always thought, Dad always said to me, whatever you do in an interview, if you're not, always tell the truth. And I had looked at Paul and thought, well, he doesn't look much of a golfer to me, he's a farmer. So I said, no, I've never played golf ever. I said, fine, and to this day, I've never had played golf. And only a year ago, I said to Paul, just one thing I always wanted to ask you, why did you ask me that question? He says, it's a good job you said no, because if you'd said yes, you'd have had too much time, you wouldn't have had enough time to train horses and you wouldn't be here now. <laughs> that makes me laugh. So I got it right from the start with Paul and hit it off and it's been an amazing place in Ditchit for all these years, I've been here 32 years now. How important was he as a mentor to you? A brilliant man. Um, yeah, great supporter financially in buying horses. I mean, we ever, we were always on a strictly, kept everything on a business relationship. You know, he paid the same training fees as everybody else. And apart from that six months, he he he, he repaid him for that six months he, he, to help me. He didn't charge him any rent. But um, as a as a friend, fantastic as a supporter and attracting owners, he was great because he you know he, he he saw that as his yard as much as mine. But that all of his advice from running a business basically, because you know he was a very successful businessman. I'd not even started a business, so I was common sense. You know, no training in those days. You had to learn everything yourself. So from running a business, very very successful. Lots of his sayings were like fantastic for, for me. You know, and I saw that it took years to become the champion trainer. Um, how important is patience? I thought, I thought it was a bit, was it, when, when did I start training? I think I was, I, I think it took me, few, I was champion trainer for the first in 2006, started in 91, it took me seven or eight years to train a Cheltenham winner, but each year, you know, you start off, I had eight, uh, ten winners, I think my first year, then it might have been 20, you gradually tick along, but you always want to have winners at Cheltenham, and the first three or four years I was training, you had run horses at Cheltenham. You look back now and think, what was I doing running them at Cheltenham? You're disappointed at the time. I basically had no chance, you know, hoping. But it was all about, in my eyes, you need to train some big winners. And I started to train a few half-okay ones. Then in 1999, unbelievably, been to Cheltenham with no winners. On the first day of the festival, we won a race called the Arco Chase with a horse called Flagship Puberala. So we thought, oh, we made it. The next day, the Wednesday, Call Ekonane won the Queen Mother Champion Chase. I would think this is unbelievable. I turn up at Cheltenham on the Thursday and Seymour Business wins a Gold Cup. So within three days, I've gone from zero to three Cheltenham winners, including, you know, the champion chase. And that, that was the start of my career, really. That, if I hadn't have done that this week, I probably wouldn't be here now. That turned everything around. All of a sudden, everybody took 
sort of set up to it now. So this guy can obviously train. They've got a good setup. He's got a good landlord and good friend behind him. And we started getting horses then, and then we took off. And how would you define, a lot of people speak about it in various sports, but how would you define the winning mindset? It is all about winning. You've got to be determined. You don't care how hard you work. And this game is 24-7, seven days a week, dealing with everybody. But it's all about winning. You know, it's like, you, you. that's why I do it. I want to win races and win for the owners and the pleasure of winning. Second's no good to nobody. But that's no different to whether you're a racing driver or a football manager. Or, I mean, Alex Ferguson is a great friend of mine. He, he was a good because he was a winner. Being second didn't even come in the equation. Work hard and make everything try and happen so you can, you know, try and win. It doesn't happen all the time, of course it doesn't, but you want to, you want to be a winner. And you mentioned earlier about uh, the successful trainer of the time. How, how important is rivalry in driving that competitive spirit? Well, any rivalry in sport is, you know, it's, and when you're at the top, there's a lot of rivalry because everyone's trying to knock you off that perch, really. But for years, you know, for all those years I go back, when I started, Martin Pipe was the most successful trainer there had been for a long time, if not in jump racing's history, really. And... I think he won 15 trainers championships. And when I first started up, once I got going and was doing well, I think I might have been second to him five or six years on the trot. I was I mean, determined to to um, become champion trainer. And actually, I think in 2006, I did. 2005, we got close to say, 2006. I, th I think I'm right in saying that was our first time. And I've since then won now 14 trainers championships. So we're all behind Martin. So it would be... I'd be very sort of proud the fact that we could equal what he achieved because he was a fantastic trainer and did very, very well and just took took the levels of fitness and jump racing to a different level in my eyes. So give us a few of the stats. How many winners have you had? And you were talking earlier about the percentage of... Well, I mean, I don't... Every year you try and get a, a fairly good strike rate, which is wins to run. I think last year we were running 30% most of the season and it just it dropped off a little bit towards the end when some of the horses had done enough. And we ended up with 27% strike rate. I think last season, trained 163 winners and the most prize money actually we ever had was about 3.6 million in prize money. That's not for me, that's what you collectively get for the owners. So last season, 14th trainers championship, most prize money we've earned. And, you, and I think well, now we are well over 3,600 winners since we started. So I don't think anyone's ever trained 4,000 jump winners. Martin's got the closest, so that's another little goal. I'd love to do that one day. Um, but in any sport, competitive, you know, you're competitive, you want to keep on doing it. And as long as I'm fit and healthy and Clifford is and we're enthusiastic, going to keep going as we are. How would you describe your character in three words? I've got a lot better. I, I used to count to 10 and blow off. Um, and now I don't. I'm. I'm very much. I'm much more laid back than now than ever I was because that's experience, isn't it? You know, sometimes you, when you're younger, you do stupid things and make mistakes because you're in too much of a hurry. You know, I've learned a lot, and I'd like to think I, I'm. I want things done properly. You know, I, I don't suffer fools, and I want things done properly. So, can you give us an example of the kind of standards that you want to see across the yard, and and what would happen if those corners were cut? Well. I want the highest standards there are and I don't accept corners being cut but Clifford would know if I got a problem I just say to Clifford I want this done better or that done better or one of my assistants which is like Charlie Dave you make sure that they make things are done right and those people underneath you if they know that there's no cutting corners things got to be done right it is done right so I'd say most things now we've got in place are done right and we you know we there's no place for cutting corners training horses or looking after horses it's got to be done properly Delegation is one key thing, but how do you make sure that there's accountability and 
people take responsibility for the things that you're delegating. Well, you trust those people that you've got in, in those top jobs, really. And I remember one of the things Paul Barber said to me years ago was, and it's very true, delegate, my boy, delegate. Otherwise, you won't make it. You can't do it all. When you're young, you try and do it all. And he was right. You know, you've got to sit back and give people that in those good positions, just let them get on with it. If things, they're not doing it right, you let them know that. But delegation is a massive part of running my business and what I do. Some people find it quite hard to have the confidence to confront people or to have a difficult conversation. So they tend to leave things and it gets worse. What, what's your approach to having difficult conversations? It has to be done. You know, you can't put it, I hate confrontation, probably like any other person, I hate it. But you have to be brave and get on with it. You know, whether it's ringing an owner and saying his horse is injured or one of the jockeys, the owner's not very happy and they don't want to use him the next day or someone in the, in the staff isn't getting on well with the horse. They might like, you've got to put someone else on it. You've got to get on with it. You have to confront these things, otherwise you're going to end up in a muddle. So it's not, it's not easy, but you have to do it. And what gives you the confidence to, to tackle that? I don't know, it's confidence, it's just, I'm not saying it's confidence, it's just the way I've always been, you know. Just, yeah, Paul, you know, if ever I needed any advice, I'd probably go and talk to Paul, and he'd always, he'd always sort of put me on, he was always a very positive person, and um, I think he always used to say, any decision's better than no decisions, you, you know, you've got, and he's right, you can't ponder on things, you have to make decisions, but I don't know, you just learn to deal with it. You, have, you know you've got to deal with it. And if I have one of the horses injured, what I do now, I wouldn't, and, and it's a fatal injury or a really serious injury, and you know, you know your owner's going to be upset and ring, I'd do it straight away, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stew on it. And that's the hardest, but that is the hardest part of this job when you have to ring up somebody and say their horse has been injured or something's happened, or one of the, ring up a parent and say one of the, their kids has just broke his leg or something like that. Those things are hard to do, but you have to get on with it. So you sort of hinted at it a minute ago that you think your leadership's changed over your career. What's what's the sort of early years and the modern version? If you're... Not being in such a hurry, I think, more than anything. And, and patience, that's a big word in this, training these horses and the people's patience. Probably those two, you, you know, when you first start, you, you, you want, you're in too much of a hurry. You want to, you probably make wrong decisions or don't think about things enough. You just have to, experience comes into all those things, you know. I've been doing it 32 years now, so come across most situations and you, you know how to deal with them um, and patience is a big thing training horses and, and and you know you have to get your owners on board with that you know Rome wasn't built on a day you can't just buy a horse put the petrol in turn a key and it keeps winning some of them just take time and you have to learn to deal with that and your owners have to be on board with you, you know so it's experience is the biggest thing of all really this is just a quick reminder to visit sportingedge.com and see how our global network of entrepreneurs, coaches and corporate organisations are using interviews like this one to drive discussion and innovation across their business. Our mindset is such a huge part of the way we interact with our team and the way we think and perform for ourselves. So we've created a digital toolkit from over 100 world-class experts, strategists, neuroscientists and winners like Paul to inspire you and your team when you need it. So visit sportingedge.com to find out how you can join. You know, that self-awareness and managing your own emotions, have you managed to create a bit more perspective now, despite that ferocious ambition? I used to stew on things too much, but I don't know. You sort of got to move forward to the next day and it's coping with losing in a lot of ways, I suppose. 
you know, you, it's, you, you, but you, you've got to count to 10 and move on. And um, again, it all comes with experience, you know, as you get older and you've dealt with all, all these situations over times, you know, how to, you know how, to, how to behave and try to behave and you've always got to try and behave, but you might be steaming, but you've got to try and try not to show it in public. And you're obviously in a very public role and you've mentioned the owners and that expectation, both from the punters and the owners, they always expect to win and they want to win. How do you cope with that external noise and expectation and go about your job? You just have to deal with it. You, it's not always easy, but you, you do learn to deal with it. Yeah, there's a huge expectation all the time. Um, and the more the better you do, the more there's that expectation and it can't you just you just learn to deal with it. I just have done it. Now again it's, it's it's having that experience over the years to deal with those situations, you know. And I think experience is a massive word with anyone who's been involved in a business or a sport for as long as I probably have. What what's the biggest decision you think you've ever had to make? Uh, the biggest decision I ever had to make was have the balls to go and start training, really on a shoestring, and make try and make it work. Because if I hadn't made it work, I don't know what I'd have done. And that's probably the biggest decision I ever made. I wanted to train horses. Do you think having nothing else was a motivator? Just the, the fact that I wanted to be successful, and I loved the thought and the challenge of, tra of training horses being successful. I think that's what drove it. If I hadn't been successful, God knows what I'd have done. Um, but yeah, and then you know, the motivation and drive to make it happen and be positive. You, you spoke earlier about Martin Pipe's yard and having modern fitness training, and, and that was a key part that you'd picked up on. Um, how much have you used science or innovations to try and drive this part of the sport forward? I don't use that much science, to be honest with you. Um, but a lot of it's common sense and working out what you want to achieve high levels of fitness and, and, and having a, uh, a setup, as you've seen all the different gallops today, that works really well for training the horses. And you learn over, over years, you see different things. And you never stop learning this game. That's one thing I've learned from day to day. You never stop learning. But um, just being there, have the setup that you think that works really well for what the I mean, when I first started, all I had was the uphill bit, which you saw this morning. Well, that was never going to work. Just, yeah, look, we could have bumbled along train 20 winners a year. You probably wouldn't have done any more of that. But to be really, really successful, I remember saying to Paul, I need a flat gallop as well. Otherwise, we're going to have to go. And he said, right, come on, let's, boy, let's go and walk the farm. We'll find somewhere to put the flat gallop in. So hence the flat gallop came in then eventually we put those two loops in so you put you know it's, it's, it's working out what you need to get the best out of horses and I think the set that we got now is fantastic. So do you think that um, those patterns over decades of seeing thousands of horses and you know hundreds of thousands of training sessions do you think that's given you a sort of pattern that you can recognize what's good and what's bad? Oh yeah, you learn what is good in it. Yeah, you learn what is good and what's bad. That instinct and Clifford and I are on the same wavelength. And also been in a situation where you can finance good facilities. Obviously, as you're building your business, I'm starting. You, you've got you can only do so much. But I've always been one to play money straight back into the business when I can and try and make sure we've got the very very best of facilities for horses and staff. How important you've mentioned the barbers. You've got various sponsors. How. How important are partnerships in building an organisation like this? Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, my biggest partnership's always been with Paul Barber all those years. Uh, and then a pal of mine, Jed Mason, runs a fantastic company called Mawson International. He sponsors the yard and sponsors me. I've had a 
fantastic relationship with Betfair for I think 13 years I've been an ambassador for them. Partnerships like that are massively important, you know, and you, you put yourself out there and help you and, and hopefully you're helping them as well. So it's massively important. Yeah. As is, like you said earlier, but another partnership, probably one of the most important partnerships is a partnership with two of them, between yourself and your head lad, Clifford, and myself and my stable jockey in Harry. How would you define, when we read these books about high-performing teams and high-performing organisations, what comes to mind as the top characteristics of a really well-tuned organisation in your mind? That's good teamwork, good personnel, proper staff, and the, and, the, and the energy and the strive to win. That's what the Formula One teams, for example, you know, Red Bull, let's look at them. I mean, the teams, all they want to do every weekend is win. They want the best car the best driver and make it happen. They've got a big team behind them. It motivates them. It really is winning. It motivates them. And, you know, on that Sunday, we're up on that podium or on the Saturday, we're at Kempton picking up a big trophy. It's motivation. That motivates your team. Do you think you need to be obsessed to be as successful as you've been? You probably have. I was saying to Harry, were you user-driven? You've got, to, you've got to be motivated by what you're doing, but probably obsessed with the sport and obsessed with winning in a lot of ways. Which might sound sad, but it probably is like that. If you had Alex Ferguson saying, he'd probably answer that as well. Say the same, you, you know, you want to win. So is there is there a sort of final number of winners or is there a target for number of years as the champion trainer? Obviously, Martin was champion trainer 15 times. To be 16 would be a nice record goal, wouldn't it? Because you'd be in a record and to train 4,000 winners. Those are my two real goals. But if you said to me, one thing above all else, what would you like to do? I'd love to win another Cheltenham Gold Cup. No one's trained more than five. I think a couple of trainers have trained Gold Cup five times. I'd love to join that club of training. You know, the Cheltenham Gold Cup to me is the, the race, so I'd love to do that again. So I'd, that would be my biggest ambition of all, probably. Managing your emotions on, on the race day. Um, you know, talk us through the, the sort of timing of the day and perhaps like what you do to keep your distance or... Well, most days, race days, especially big days, are quite intense. Usually watch one or two lots here in the morning, then go off racing. Charlie would drive me, my assistant. Um, then I have to deal with the owners and just deal with the pressures. You know, some, some days are better than other days, you know. It's, race days are quite hard and I still get fairly wound up. But you just got to keep your emotions in check on the race course if you can, and then if you've got, you've got to let it all off. You let it off later on, you know. But I love going racing. I love, I love the whole experience of it all. You know, dialogue with all your owners, and when you have good days, there's nothing better. And how many? You know, again, we see on Instagram that everyone's promoting that they're living the best life pretty much every day. Um, for every Gold Cup win on the podium, how many days down the bottom there are you standing in the rain? Do you think? I mean, all winter, you know, we're winter sports, so a lot of days you're out in the freezing cold and getting soaking wet, and, you know, the good days are good days. You've got to make those count because there's an awful lot of bad days when you're going racing. So, yeah, let's make the good days count and enjoy it all. And I just, as I said, I love the whole thing. So one of the things some leaders struggle with is they've got that burning ambition to be the best, but then cascading that down into roles and responsibilities and standards across their organisation that become habits and they just repeat 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 and the system then becomes optimized that that's the harder bit to make it part of the culture if you like so how have you translated your ambition for the highest possible standards into daily habits and you know 
practices that, that are executed? Having a good team, as I said, headed up by Clifford, and I've got really, I've had really good assistant trainers. You need that team that you're always driving. As I said to you, we, we always, I don't know whether any other trainers do, we have a board meeting once a month in the pub where all my key staff will spend two hours over lunch and you know, come up with ideas. I'll ask them, come up, what, where we're going wrong, what we could do to improve, and I say what I think we can do and where we we can improve. And so you never stop trying to improve. And the team's always got to be aware of your own ambitions and what you, what you're thinking and what you're expecting of them. Are there any practical examples of something that's been raised over one of those lunches that got implemented, and you you thought it was a great idea that perhaps you hadn't seen? you're too close to it and somebody came up with a good suggestion. I mean, one thing we've done recently, we've changed the feed. Um, and I know Clifford wasn't particularly happy with what we were feeding. It wasn't, we weren't getting quite the results we wanted. And we came up with an idea we were going to quite radical change our feed, which we did last season and it worked out fantastic. That's one example of an idea. It can be a, a, a changing a gallop surface or changing the haylage. Or, uh, the, you know, there are examples that you you, I'd say the most recent one would be the feed, changing the feed. What are the um, kind of dysfunctions that you might see in a team where things aren't happening or people are cutting corners? Again, we can promote this vision of perfection, but what are some areas? We're all humans and we like to stay in our comfort zone. What do you sometimes see creeping in and what do you do? to? As the season goes on, people might get tired and start getting late and and cutting corners but then that's why you've got you know as I said in my case assistants and a lad who, who make sure that doesn't happen there's plenty of people just keep their eyes and ears to the ground to make sure uh, most of the time it all goes well you know I can see what's going on I mean I walk around the yard every single night with Clifford if I'm here I'm there every morning so I see what's going on and I'll make sure things don't happen it's just being there and making sure things are done right without making it such a big thing. You've uh, been part of the career of some incredible horses and we're sitting uh, just with Corto Star behind us, tell us a little bit about some of those great horses that you've trained and their personality and what you loved about working with them. Oh, they were amazing horses, you know. It was Corto Star, won two Gold Cups, five King Georges, amazing horse. He was like a gentle giant and next door stable to him. In box, he was in box one, Demon was box two. Demon would like literally be the that up, he'd take your arm off. He was a character. He won a Channel Gold Cup and um, two Henry Cognac Gold Cups. Lexus Chase, he was a brilliant, brilliant chaser. Totally different than what Corder was, and they're all so different. And then Masterminded, he won two champion chases. Big Bucks, he won four world hurdles. He was a complete fruit loop. Neptune Clons won the national. I could go on and on, and we've been so lucky to have some amazing horses, but they're all so different. And part of getting the key is getting to know them as individuals. And how oh, they were amazing years between about 2005 and 2012 with those amazing horses. It just how they ended up here was just. I thought, I told myself when they all sort of finished, that was the end. We wouldn't end up with any more really good ones. And we've had Silvanaka Contes, Clandes um, um, Abou, I go on and on there. Horses that keep on coming and winning those big races. And that's what it's all about. But I have been lucky to train some of the, you know, the very best national hunt horses. Probably Cordo Start was the, the best, but we're incredibly lucky. And you just, I don't know, it's, it, you, our job then is to get the best out of them, look after them. Um, and in the case, all of them find great homes when they retire from racing. Um, but they were special days when I had all those, especially him. I mean, his record probably never been beaten the races he won. And this idea of sustained success, you know, this dream of being 
you know, all-time champion trainer. Um, doesn't happen, you know, we know the horses are getting older and finishing their careers. So you've always got to be looking for new talent coming through. What kind of proportion of your stables are um, new horses coming through, younger um, talent, and, and where do you go and find them? And what are you looking for in them? Well, every year we probably bring in 24-year-olds that we bought the previous summer as a three-year-old. Now I was trying to explain just really what I call the Ditch Academy. So we buy them as unraced three-year-olds. They spend one year, one season with Will Biddick, who works in tandem with me in pre-training. So they get broken and they talk to jump. They have a year experience, know what's life. It's up in a prep school in a lot of ways. And they'll join me at four in the autumn, they're four. And then we'll buy another. So I'd probably buy 23-year-olds every year. So you've got a production line, a nice, lovely four-year-olds coming into the squad, as it were. And I was saying over dinner last night, it's like having a football squad. We always got horses on the transfer list, as it were. We always got horses we let out at the top that we think probably done all they can and might do another job. And horses that aren't good enough to move on to another job as well. So you're always turning your squad over. And you always got good young players, horses coming into it all the time. It's the only way to keep going forward. Otherwise, you'd stand still. What's the achievement that gives you most pride? Um... I think winning all those gold cups were were fantastic because uh, to me the gold cup is Olympic. It's the pinnacle of our jump race. Everybody strives to win the gold cup, and I've been lucky to win it four times. Seymour Business '99, Quarter 2007, Demon 2008, and then Quarter again in 2009. Those are magical, magical days and moments. But so many things in this, you know, being champion trainer, it's a, it's a fantastic achievement. I'm really proud of that. Um, but I'm proud of the whole success of Team Ditcher. It's been fantastic and it's been a fantastic story for me. And it feels to me like we've only just begun and I just love it. So what's the end goal, do you think, that when you look back, do you think you'll ever retire or do you think this is a job for life? Well, to me, it's a job for life. As long as I'm fit and healthy and got that enthusiasm and people support you, um, to me, it's a job for life. I've got no reason why I can even consider retiring. Can't dread the thought of it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I'm sure his rivals won't be keen to hear him say that he wants to go on forever, but an incredible man and an incredible success story. So there are a few key leadership lessons that I learned from my time with Paul. First, obviously, it's the quest to be the best, and that gets him and his team up in the morning with that attention to detail. And secondly, he took that risk early on to run the yard but he couldn't have done it without his mentor that sadly passed away, Paul Barber. And he said that 20% of his new talent is coming into the system each year. So he's not just a winner, he's sustaining his success by bringing in new bloodstock and training them up into the Paul Nichols way. But he's also built this perfect physiological training environment and matched it with a motivational climate for his staff. Everyone there knows their role. Everyone knows what's expected. The standards are high and Paul keeps them that way, as well as Clifford, his assistant. He has to manage up and down and he does both with honesty, transparency and speed. There's no benefit in letting things fester. He's too ambitious for that. He genuinely loves what he does. He loves the struggle. He loves getting up on those early mornings, refining the training system. And of course, he loves the end result of winning the trophies. It wouldn't be a surprise for Paul to smash beyond 4,000 winners, 
to become the most successful trainer of all time. And despite those records being his near-term targets, this quest for excellence goes beyond poor winning. It's his passion for life, and that doesn't look like it's going to fade away anytime soon. Please do share Paul's story with your network. He's so understated and I'm sure his story will inspire so many. And remember to join Sporting Edge's members platform with all our interviews with people like Gareth Southgate, Eddie Jones, neuroscientists, military leaders and corporate strategists. And every interview is broken down into a practical toolkit for you to use with your corporate teams. So head over to sportingedge.com And when you get to the checkout, use the code PODCAST100 there to get free access. So that's it for today. Make sure you've clicked the subscribe button as you exit because we've got some amazing content coming your way, including an interview with England rugby legend Johnny Wilkinson. And if you've enjoyed the show, we don't pack it full of adverts, but I'd love you to give it a five star rating on the way out because that would really help us to attract more listeners. If I can help in any way, with keynote speeches, workshops, or content for your business, then please do drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com and I'll come straight back to you. Thanks so much for listening today and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.